Welcome to Culture Matters, the podcast where we dive into the many facets of organizational culture. I am your host, Subhu Kalpati. I am a talent, leadership and organizational development professional. My guest today is Vanessa Bones, a social psychologist and a professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University. She holds a PhD in psychology from Columbia and is the author of the book, You Have More Influence Than You Think. Her research focuses broadly on social influence and the psychology of compliance and consent. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Um, before we get started, um, you know, I would love to dive a little bit into your background and, and the work that you do. Um, so if you could, um, you know, uh, say a little bit about your journey, you're, of course, a social psychologist, uh, you, you're a professor of organizational behavior at the ILR school in Cornell, um, where incidentally, I did uh, an HRM certificate a few years ago. Um, so how did you choose academia? And, you know, how did you more specifically come about researching this topic of uh, help seeking influence? and associated areas. Yeah, I you know, I was always interested in psychology and looking back, sort of always interested in persuasion. Uh I worked as a marketing intern as early as when I was like 16 years old in uh, high school and then was a psychology major and worked my first job out of college was in advertising. And so I was really interested in sort of human behavior, communication, persuasion, um, but I wasn't really calling it that in an academic sense. And I realized as I sort of went along and was in marketing um, that I I really gravitated towards these more like objectively conclusive answers. So we would like pitch our idea of the most persuasive campaign to a client, right? And the client would have their own ideas about what the most persuasive way would be to like go about this campaign. And it was always a subjective sort of conversation. And then we had this group. uh, I worked at a big ad agency in New York City, Ogilvy and Mather at the time. And we had a, a marketing, a market research group. And so they would do things like have a focus group or, you know, run a survey. And so they could kind of give us some data. And I was so drawn to that instead of like this, you know, just going around in circles trying to figure out like what our gut said was the most sort of uh, persuasive way to do something. And so um, I, I, I really was interested in sort of moving in that direction. And when I talked to people there about what would it take to be in that department, you needed a PhD, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had to know how to do the research, right? And so I I didn't go directly back to grad school, but that was always in my head. And then I kind of decided that was what I wanted. I wanted to be able to answer these questions with data. And so I went to graduate school at Columbia and I was sort of still working on these ideas related to persuasion of just, you know, how what's more persuasive, essentially, like the basic question, like, is this more persuasive than that? Um, and I was working with a professor there at the time in the business school, Frank Flynn, and we were running a study where I had to go down to Penn Station, the train station in the middle of New York City, um, where I could get sort of, you know, as as diverse of a population and sample as I could instead of just staying on the university campus. Mm. And so I went down there and we were testing out different persuasive scripts. And I don't remember the exact details, but I was going up to people and asking for things in, in sort of different ways. And we had a prediction about what we would find. So we were kind of studying persuasion, persuasion in the typical way that it's studied. Mm. And after I did this, it was like this very traumatic experience for me because it involved going up 
to people and asking them for things, which I hated doing. And yeah. so it was just like this pang every time I went went down to Penn Station. And so finally the study was over. And I was so relieved to not have to ask people for things anymore. And I went back, you know, with all this data to the professor I was working with, and we looked at the data and we analyzed it and we were like, well, our prediction didn't work. And this is like a very common thing to happen in, in psychological research. But for me in that moment, after putting myself out there day after day and having to, to ask strangers for things, it just felt really, really painful. And so... I, I mentioned this and I was like, oh, my God, it's it was just such a horrible experience. I can't believe it was for nothing, essentially. And Frank, the professor, was kind of looking at the data and listening to me at the same time. And he noticed this real disconnect between the way I was describing my experience and what he was seeing essentially in the data. Mm. So I was like, this was horrible. I had to ask people for things, you know, it was just this constant fear of rejection and just like I hated asking. It was horrible. And he was like, you're describing this horrible experience, but I'm looking at how many people said yes to you. And it seems like people were really cooperative and kind and no one's saying like mean things to you because I would record what they said in response. And so it turned into this conversation about the disconnect between how I had experienced that and what the objective reality was, right? That he was actually looking at like what people actually said. And so we kind of wondered if maybe that was the most interesting piece of the whole thing, that that was even more interesting than our initial hypothesis. And so that's essentially what I've been studying ever since and was sort of like the first big discovery um, that led to my ongoing research on the essentially the disconnect between the way we think we're impacting other people and the way we think interactions are going mm -hmm. and how they actually are are going and that there there is this difference and we tend to underestimate the impact that we're having and think it's more negative than it than it winds up being uh, thanks for that and that's so real for me also because I, i'm also fairly introverted and you know having just this conversation right it's it's really difficult to kick it off so i know exactly what you mean um, and there is that initial um, you know push that's required but then as you say you know objective objectively when you look at the data uh, uh, you know it probably says a very different story and you write about it extensively in your book as well so um yeah, which leads me i think to my next uh, question for you um which is you know I, i'd love to get into the details of your work and the research uh, through your book which is you have more influence um, than you think so um and we'll come back to you know the research that you that you just spoke about uh, in the opening chapter though of the book something that really caught my eye was um you know we we always hold ourselves back especially when we have something nice to say about someone and um, you know something that i've also personally experienced uh, for example something as simple as expressing gratitude uh, and i know for a fact that i had to work on myself so much to just you know say thank you to people now of course it's it comes slightly more easily but we hold ourselves back, especially for doing those kinds of things. Um, wh why is that? And what do you think we should be doing instead? Yeah, so this this kind of it has been one of the takeaways from this initial insight that and things are so different in our heads than they're experienced by the other person we're interacting with and then the reality, essentially. Yeah. And so um, I will note that I am also an introvert and I can be quite shy in social situations. And all these findings are exacerbated mm. for introverts and and people who, you know, are tend to be more shy. So it, it happens for everybody, but even more so if you're, you're kind of inherently introverted. Um, and part of that is that we 
we kind of we assume that if we were to, for example, express gratitude to someone or go up to a stranger and compliment them on something, we think that first of all, uh, we're not going to do it very effectively. Like we're, you know, going to stumble over our words or we wouldn't really know what to say or and maybe we're anxious because we're introverted or shy. And so we're like, I, I can't say it in, in as articulate of a way as I would like to. So we focus on like how competently we can convey that compliment or that gratitude. Um, we also think that we're going to annoy that person that by interrupting them, you know, if it's a stranger, for example, that they're going to be annoyed that the stranger is interrupting them or you know, that if if we're expressing gratitude to like a mentor, that they're too busy and it would just take time away from the day or clutter their email or something yeah. like that. Um, and so we kind of assume that uh, we'll annoy them, that we won't do a good job of expressing it. And we also assume that it won't actually mean that much to them that we, you know, like it sure it'll feel nice, but is it would it really feel that nice in the end where it's worth interrupting them and maybe being like awkward, right? And so when we and other researchers have sort of tested out this perception and looked at how expressing gratitude or compliments to another person um, tested out the reality of that, we find that all those things that are in our head are just not true. And so you can kind of put yourself in the other, you know, the other side. If yeah. you get an email from someone expressing what they, you know, what you meant to them and the things that you did that really impacted their life, or if you're stopped by a stranger who just says like, I really love um, you know, either some way that you're dressed or some way that you just behaved or whatever it might be, you know, it feels great. We don't care if that person said it in a, in sort of a, a less articulate way than they would have liked. And we're not annoyed because we just heard something really nice about ourselves. And it actually like can make your whole day, right? If you're on the other side. Yeah. And so we've in, in research sort of tested that. So the person who's giving the compliment or expressing gratitude, we ask them, how good is this going to make the other person feel? How awkward is it going to make them feel? You know, um, how much are they going to care about how perfectly you phrase this versus just kind of the warm glow they get from hearing it? Yeah. And we focus on the wrong things because then when we ask the person who receives the compliment or the gratitude, they're like, that felt really great, but we think it would just feel a little good. And they're like, no, that wasn't awkward at all. And we think it was super awkward to go up, you know, and um, they they could care less if we stumbled over our words. They're focused on the nice thing you said, not how you said it. And so it's it's this really great example of the fact that our words, even when they're imperfectly delivered, you know, when it's genuine and when it's warm, they mean a lot to other people, much more than than we think. Um, I'd love to know uh, what what do we get typically wrong, and I think you've touched upon it a little bit already. What do we typically get wrong about? how much influence we have on others, right? And why do we sometimes wrongly assume that I'm going to be turned down or people are more likely to say no to my request, right? So why does why does that happen? Yeah, so there's, you know, we, so my general sort of theme of my research and my book is that we underestimate our influence. So in sort of short, that's what we get wrong. We think yeah. we have less influence than we think. Hmm. And that can be for different reasons depending on the situation. And so a lot of it is because, much of the influence we have is just hidden from us, right? We say something and the other person doesn't always react right there to whatever it is we said. They don't change their behavior like that. They don't always acknowledge that we made them think a little bit about something. You know, influence can be delayed. It can happen, you know, just in someone's head where we don't ever really get to see it. It can be cumulative. So we say something 
And we don't think it had an effect, but they hear it again from someone else. And the fact that they heard it from two people now really has a big effect. Um, and so a lot of influence happens in these ways where we just don't have access to it. And so we assume it's not happening, but it's happening where we don't see it. Right. Um, so that's part of it. Another part is that we folk we tend to focus on the negative. Um, we tend to remember the times where we told someone to do something and they just kept doing something else, right? Or we asked someone for something and they said no, because those moments loom large. Those moments where we really actively tried to influence someone and we failed, those are painful and they stick in our heads. And all those times where we asked someone for something simple and they said yes, we forget about those, right? And so we don't realize that those far outnumber the times that someone said no. And so because of this negative looms larger effect, when we make a guess about the likelihood that someone will listen to us or will say yes to us, um, we tend to overemphasize the chance of a no or the chance of someone just rejecting our argument when, in fact, more often than not, people will say yes and actually do take the things we say seriously. Mm. I, you know, I wish we had this, um, uh, I don't know, better access to this part of our brain, which looks as the, at the data more objectively when we do these kinds of things. Uh, that's that's kind of my big takeaway also, right? Because you go back to the data, that's what you typically find uh, in all of these situations. But then that's not typically how we function, I suppose. As you said, this negative effect of leaning back on, you know, those negative ex effect of leaning, leaning back on the negative experiences far outweighs um, what what's really going on, especially in these kind of interactions. Which is um, which is fascinating. So thanks for sharing that. Um, another point that I would love to touch upon is, um, you know, you you share this uh, experience uh, example of um, just having an experience with another person, uh, right? Can can impact our experience of doing that thing. Um, and you give uh, you know a couple of examples in the book about that, which again was very fascinating for me. Just having, let's say, my wife with me when I'm experiencing something or a friend might really change my experience of that stuff, whether it's you know going out for a meal or whatever it may be. So, could you explain how that works and what's what's the science behind that? Yeah, and this this kind of builds also on the last question because. It, it shows that we can influence people, not just in these ways that we, when we think of influence, we think of like, I specifically tried to influence you by asking you for something or by arguing something, right? Trying to persuade you. But I define influence much more broadly. And that's part of the reason we have so much influence is because we can influence people just by existing near them, by being in the same room as them, right? Because People watch one another, right? They they experience things alongside one another, and that changes what they do and what they experience and what they think. And so one of these that's really fascinating because it's just so subtle, but it actually changes your experience is this, this amplification of shared experiences. Basically, when you share an experience with another person, it becomes even more intense or amplified for better or worse. So the way it's been studied is with chocolates. Um, as well as with some other things like looking at art. Mm. But the chocolate one is really interesting because they really looked at the positive and the negative. So they had people basically just eat the same piece of chocolate from the same chocolate bar, um, a sweet, like delicious chocolate with another person, not talking, not making eye contact, not actually interacting, but they just knew the other person was sharing the same experience as them. Mm. And people who shared that experience with another person 
rated the chocolate as tastier and the taste is more intense than people who didn't have another person who was tasting with them. Again, without any communication or sort of agreement on what the chocolate tasted like or discussion or anything. Yeah. And this was also true for a bitter, unpleasant tasting chocolate. So it wasn't just that the yummy chocolate tasted better. It was that the sort of gross tasting chocolate tasted worse and more more bitter. And so they kind of conclude that experiences are amplified when we share them with other people. And their explanation, because again, there's no communication, right? You're not like coming to a joint assessment of this. Their explanation is that if we know someone else is experiencing the same thing as us, we're having the experience ourselves but we're also constantly simulating what that experience is for the other person. Mm-hmm. We're we're just naturally social animals. And so we're curious about other people. We want to know, like, is this person also thinking the same thing about the chocolate? And as we try to simulate that experience for someone else, it just amplifies it. We're, we're essentially feeling it twice through our own brains and then through the simulation of someone else's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. So in the end, simply by sharing an experience with someone, whether it's watching a movie or going to a museum and looking at a piece of art or sharing a dessert, it it amplifies that experience and makes it more intense for both people in the end. Yeah. And an extension of that, um, which you also talk about in the book, which I found to be very fascinating is just having, uh, you know, the audience that's uh, that you're speaking to or addressing let's say in a meeting, for instance, and you give the example of faculty meetings in academia, uh, people in the room matter, right? So they might not really be saying anything, but just by virtue of, you know, having a representative group in the room, when that meeting on also affects how, um, you know, decisions are made, uh, you know, in in that particular forum. Uh, That's probably an extension of the same principle, right? If I got that right. Yeah, it's, it's similar. So again, it's, you know, we have this idea of what influence looks like. And if I were to ask you, like, who's having influence in a room, you'd say, like, it's the person standing in the front doing Mm. the presentation, right? Um, But in fact, all those people that that person is presenting to are influencing that person as well. And so it's a very mutual give and take. There's this um, sort of indirect influence, even when they're not actively trying to. And so you can imagine, you know, if you were the one in front of the room giving this presentation, you're looking out at the sea of faces And if they're nodding at you, you kind of keep going with what you're saying. And you say it maybe even more, you're kind of more emboldened to keep saying what you're saying. And if they're all looking really skeptical, you might kind of change what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. So they're actually kind of implicitly influencing what you're saying, which in the end might affect whether you think that maybe you were right about the thing you were saying, or maybe, you know, you should question it. Um, So one of the examples I do give is this idea of just coming to the table, just being at the table can affect the way a discussion happens, right? So um, and the, in a very simplistic example, if you just have a table all full of men and they're talking about benefits, right? There's no one there to sort of prime you necessarily to think about like what um, women's like maternal leave might look like, right? Or parental leave um, or birth leave or something like that. Um, but then if you have just one woman at the table, just seeing that person might make you realize like, oh, actually, we should also talk about this. So they don't even have to necessarily bring it up, but people are aware of who's there and they adjust their language and the discussion to kind of fit that audience. And it can change the discussions that happen. And so it really emphasizes the importance of who's actually at that table, not just for who has input, but who you're thinking about as you're having these, these discussions. 
I'd love to uh, I'd love to um, shift focus just a little bit um, and um, you know uh, this point that you make about behavioral contagion um, and how I couldn't help think about how it could be beneficial in an organizational context especially when we think uh, when we talk about um, advocating for the right kind of behaviors right when leaders set up a kind of uh, want to drive a kind of uh, culture in, in an organization or in a team um could you talk about that a little bit maybe uh, you know how how it might benefit leaders uh, how, of course it it could go either ways but uh, assuming that we want to drive the right kind of behaviors how could behavioral contagion help um, from your perspective yeah so behavioral contagion is again another one of these sort of indirect um mm-hmm. effects of influence right where uh we behavior kind of spreads that the metaphor is like it spreads almost like a disease although it's Mm. not exactly like a disease metaphor but the idea is that you would like one person starts to do something and then the people near them start to do that because they see it they see it modeled right and so um the sort of clearest way to use that of course would be to model certain behaviors yourself once you start for example, if you want people to be coming into the office at a certain time or dressing a certain way on certain days of the week, if you model that behavior, right, even without necessarily saying anything about it, um, and the people who interact with you the most start modeling that, right? So maybe you start having a meeting early on with one person. And so now they're always at the office a little earlier. And so other people see that and they're like, oh, well, if they're at the office, maybe I should be there at that time. And so they start to mimic that behavior and then the next person. So a lot of it is just kind of initiating in some way, hmm. some initial behavior, ideally with, you know, a couple people who are kind of central to someone's network or, you know, are visible amongst other people. And that can potentially like populate to the rest of, of the group. Yeah, very interesting. Thanks. Um, it's it's important because um, you know uh, I at least in in my profession I hear a lot about um, uh, advocating for the right kind of behaviors within a team and how it's important for uh, not just leaders but also influential people within the team to model those behaviors um, for the rest of the group to pick up right whether it's being pro-social for instance um, you know uh, being supportive so that we can have a supportive culture within this group um, so I think that um, that concept kind of uh, really stuck with me uh, associated um, question there you did touch upon it again is um, is this concept of direct change versus direct versus uh, indirect effect of um, you know our actions on others uh, what's uh, could you talk about that a little bit and what's what's more important to consider yeah so the idea here is that is an argument by um, a number of people, but most close to me, uh, an economist here at Cornell, Bob Frank, who has talked about direct versus indirect influence. So direct influence is like, I ask you to do something and you do it. Or he he's an economist, so he talks a lot about using... Um, you know, incentives to to affect people's behavior. So, for example, one of my classes just yesterday, we read an op-ed he had written about uh, using carbon taxes to reduce uh, greenhouse emissions, right? And so he writes about the direct effect of that. You tax something or you implement some sort of strategy that changes a behavior, and you look at how that strategy eff- directly affected that behavior. So if I'm getting charged more, I change my behavior. But what he argues is that, in fact, there's something even bigger than that direct effect, which is the indirect effect. And this is similar, as you said, to behavioral contagion. So mm. 
He uses smoking a lot as the example. So there was a tax on smoking here in the U.S. And a number of smokers, you know, cut down on their smoking or stopped altogether because smoking became too expensive. But that alone did not explain why smoking changed so much in a short amount of time. And he argues that what happened is as one person in a friend group stopped, maybe because of this incentive, other people in the friend group were kind of like wondering, why did that person stop? You know, maybe um, I should stop too. And there's this indirect effect that wasn't, they're not stopping because of this tax, but they're stopping because their friend stopped. And so social influence kind of uh, takes one effect, the direct effect, and multiplies it um, much more than that direct effect could ever have meant because you can kind of influence multiple people. So another domain he talks about it with is solar panels. Um, and you can imagine, you know, like one person decides to, uh, install a solar panel in their neighborhood. And now people are walking by noticing the solar panel going up and kind of being like, uh, you know, I wonder why maybe you save money that way, or maybe it's pretty easy to do it. And they're kind of simulating now the process of considering this. Right. And maybe there was a government incentive, you know, that that person was aware of. And so that got them to do it, but now their action is having a much bigger indirect effect uh, um, on the neighborhood and might affect more people than that initial sort of direct effect did. And so it's a really powerful way of sort of thinking about the down, this like trickle effect of sort of um, getting a couple important people to sort of start a behavior and watching that spread in, in a population. Sure, very interesting. And that also reminds me of, um, you know, research that I had read some time ago about how it's important to focus also on strong ties versus weak ties, uh, especially when it comes to, um, you know, the indirect effect, right, on a population, because you will see a friend do it and maybe you'll do it as a result of that. But a stranger doing the same thing, you know, probably you might not uh, consider it as important for you uh, to be able to make that change yourself, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. Um, the other uh of course, coming back to persuasion, um, one super insight that I took away for myself is that, um, you know, even today in organizations, um, uh, I used to be in consulting and even in the in the firm that I work for, um, there is a lot of focus on this aspect of assertiveness, right? We want people to be confident and be assertive and, um, you know, that, that mindset of having this assertiveness as a skill core skill among people, especially managers, um, tends to kind of, uh, you know, still proliferate. And you make the point that sometimes we overestimate how assertive we need to be. And uh, sometimes it can also backfire because, um, you know, we might kind of overstep. So um, question there is, Professor, why is this and what should we be doing instead, right? So can you maybe take walk us through uh, assertiveness versus persuasion and how the two subtly differ? Yeah, um, and it's interesting because I talk, in the book, I talk about some research on uh, assertiveness in health communication. So, you know, for example, someone in your family just really needs to eat better or exercise more and you're so frustrated and just really you feel like the only way to get through to them is to be like, just do it. Like, come on already. Right. And you, you want to be super assertive. Um, and part of it is that it's frustrating if we see that it's not having an impact. Right. So it goes back to the way we think about influence. Like if I say it, I want to see the behavior right then and there. Um, and that's often not how influence works. Um, but also assertiveness leads to reactance on the other person's side, right? I don't want you telling me what to do, right? I'm, I'm going to sort of react against that. And so um, so in that research, right, they compare 
people who use this super assertive, direct uh, way of asking people to engage in health behaviors, like just just do it more, just exercise more, yeah. to a more gentle, less assertive way, which is giving the same information. Like, you know, it would be really good for you if you did this more. And people were more receptive to a less assertive message. But interestingly, people assumed that the more assertive message would be the more effective one. So we think that the way to get people to do things is to be more assertive, to like be really clear. Um, and it's not so much clarity. It's more like assertiveness, right? So being clear is fine, but I should say assertive. So we think we should be really assertive, but in fact, being a little less assertive is often more effective. And interestingly, as I mentioned, that was the research that had been done at the time of the book that I focused on. But just recently, there was another paper that came out mm -hmm. showing a similar effect that um, they coded uh, people's mess persuasive messages uh, trying on a, on a political topic, essentially. And they found that a certain groups of people tended to be more persuasive in written persuasion. One group was women. And one of the reasons was that they wrote less assertive. They spent more time kind of explaining the argument but they were less assertive in their explanation. And so people were more kind of open and they actually listened to the, this persuasive argument. And so our intuition essentially is a little miscalibrated there, right? We want to just kind of take a step back and trust that someone's listening and just try to explain it. I think a good suggestion is to assume the other person is actually going to listen instead of assuming that it's going to be a battle, which we often do. Um, and then talking to them as a rational person who will listen, which often is uh, kind of lowers the the natural assertiveness that we want to go forward with. Sure, sure. Very interesting. Um, thank you for that. Um, there's another section in your book um, which uh, in which you talk about this big finding about uh, psychology. And to be honest, I wasn't aware that it was such a big deal uh, until I, I read about it uh, through through your book. Um, which is that, um, you know, we choose to conform to social norms, not because of any kind of diffusion of responsibility or, you know, wanting to be less accountable or being ignorant or any of that. But it's it's really about fear of embar embarrassing ourselves or the other person or whoever is in the room. Um, so why is this such a big finding? And could you talk about that uh, also a little bit? Yeah, so this is um this has been basically an argument from some social psychologists who have said if you look at a lot of these classic social psychology findings like for example the famous Milgram studies where mm. someone's willing to shock another participant because an experimenter is telling them to um or the ash line conformity studies where people yeah. say they see a line of a different length because other people said that mm. right so these social psychologists have sort of try to explain all of these phenomenon using one explanation because people will say, well, it's because they want to fit in or it's because they, you know, they're obeying this experimenter. And sort of the, the explanation that these psychologists have come up with is if there is one factor underlying all these things, it's that in each case, there's a feeling we get in that moment um, of, you know, when I have this chance to stand up and say, I see something different than the group sees it, or, you know, I disagree with what this experimenter is saying, and I don't want to do this anymore. And they they decide that that feeling, essentially, that we all feel inside in those moments is really this fear of embarrassment, right? Like, we don't want to put ourselves out there and go against the group. That's embarrassing and awkward. We don't want to say, no, I'm not going to shock this person anymore to an experimenter because that's a really awkward, embarrassing interaction. Mm. Um, 
And what's so interesting about that is we tend to think of embarrassment as such a trivial emotion. You know, you think embarrassment and you're like, oh, it's about like tripping or, you know, doing silly things. But in fact, what this sort of argument shows, right, is that embarrassment is actually incredibly powerful. It's really painful and we'll do a lot of things to avoid it, to mm. avoid an awkward interaction, including sort of going along with something where we know someone else is being hurt or literally saying that we see things differently from how our eyes see them mm. because the possibility of being embarrassed is just too painful and we'd rather just do this other thing to avoid it. Mm. Interesting. And um, also probably goes back to, uh, you know, you uh, your initial research about going to Penn Station and asking all those people, right? Perhaps they didn't want to look embarrassed or awkward by saying no to you. Is is that a right uh, assumption to make? Yeah. So that's where, um, in the end, when we, so going to Penn Station, you know, I, I, we discovered this thing where I thought people would say no to me essentially more than they did, right? Mm. They, I had a different experience in my head than reality where people just kept agreeing, you know, to do things for me. And um, we eventually took that into the lab and had other people do what I did. And we sent them out and had them ask people for things. Guess how likely it is that people would say yes and then compare it to reality. And they discovered, like me, um, that their idea of how things would go in their head was very different from reality. They thought they'd be rejected more than they were. Uh, they thought people would be essentially ruder than they were in the moment. And what's interesting is that both I and those participants, you know, the initial thought was like, wow, people are a lot nicer than we think. And there is research showing that that's true. That's not an incorrect interpretation. But Frank Flynn, the professor I was working with at the time, and I thought there was more to it, that it wasn't just that people were being really nice. It was that they also... It would have been awkward and embarrassing for everybody involved to say no. And so instead of have this awkward exchange with me, they just went ahead and and just agreed to things. And if you imagine it from the other perspective, that's a lot clearer, right? Imagine you're the one sitting like on a bench and someone comes up to you and it's just like, you know, a student with a project and or running an experiment like, would you please do this? You know, you'd rather not have to come up with the words to say no and have this awkward exchange, you know, with this person It's easier in the end to just be like, okay, I'll just do it. We'll just avoid any awkwardness and weirdness. Um, and so we found that to be the case and that drives a lot of the effects. And in later studies that I've done with other collaborators and with my students, uh, we've extended this to other kinds of situations where it's not like we could kind of disentangle this idea that people are being nice. Mm. Um, so we've had our participants ask people to do things that aren't pro-social or, you know, helpful, right. actually um, unethical. Mm. So, for example, we've had our participants ask strangers to lie for them. Mm or ask them even to vandalize library books, like books we made to look like library books. And we also find that people are more likely to say yes to those things. And so that's not because they're being nice, right? That's because in the moment, having this awkward conversation about how I don't want to do that, that's wrong, and embarrassing everybody is just, it's just too much. And so they're just like, okay, I'll just do this so that the, the whole interaction can sort of end, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which which I think brings me a perfect segue for me to ask my uh, next question, which is, you know, uh, when people understand this well and they tend to kind of over-engineer it, right, the social engineers and the hackers uh, who may use some of this knowledge to 
manipulate others or trick us into doing things that we shouldn't be doing in the first place um right so how how do you think we can shield ourselves from you know some of those uh, kind of folks and make sure that you know we're not being taken for a ride um and you give several examples in the book also but what's your view yeah and this um just as sort of uh, as as one of the examples in the book right i talk about how you know uh, in these studies, we're surprised that people go along with these things out of not wanting to like challenge someone or make the situation weird. Yeah. Um, but there are people out there like social engineers, um, essentially hackers who use social psychology to hack into systems um, who know that people find it hard to say no and they don't want to make things awkward. And so they lie about stuff and they say, you know, uh, your boss said that you should give me um, your password so that I can get into this system or they come up with these kinds of stories where if you challenge them, it's going to be awkward and embarrassing for everyone. And so a lot of people will simply go ahead and, and default to being like, OK, I guess I'll err on the side of trusting this person instead yeah. of challenging them and give them my password. And then all of a sudden, they're, you know, they've hacked into like uh, Motorola or something, yeah. um, which is one of the examples from the yeah. book. So to sort of avoid that, right, one big thing to, to help people say no is to have some sort of script or something that where you can point um, outside of this immediate interaction to say, like, it's not me and you right now. Right. It's it's the policy. And so it really does help for companies to have these trainings on social engineering with their employees where they give them a script. If someone asks you for something like this, it doesn't matter if you do trust them. It doesn't matter, you know, if it falls within this realm of possibilities. The policy is this. You tell them it's the policy that you'd get in trouble from your boss. So it's not, again, it's not about like, I don't trust you, which is a really awkward thing to say to someone. It's it's the policy. I wish I could, but it's the policy. I would get in trouble, you know. And so that that takes away that embarrassment element and that that awkward interaction and turns it into more just like it's a policy. It's coming from someone else. It's not coming from you and me. Um, and that that alone can make it easier for someone to to say no because they don't feel like they're sort of personally challenging this other person or hurting that relationship or making it awkward or something. Sure, sure. Fascinating. I was also uh, telling my wife the other day that I had, you know, a similar experience, not as uh, as uh, as big as the Motorola example that you give, where somebody asked me for my password. But I was at a library once, and um, you know, I was approached by this um, young lady who works with an NGO, uh, a non-governmental organization, and they were raising funds for whatever, right? Uh, and I, I looked at the foundation, and I I realized that I already, you know, pay them monthly. I I do. Uh, you know, contribute. Um, so I told her as much and I said, I'm sorry, I won't be able to because I already, but then um, she started telling me things like, hey, I haven't found a single, you know, donor since morning. I've been here all evening. Can you please help me out? Um, and then, uh, you know, she, she told me a couple of other things, made me feel really awkward. I, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I didn't know what to say in the moment, right? And I, I couldn't find a slip out, but then I think I held my ground and I said, look, I, I already contribute to your organization and please, uh, you know, and, and she took the cue after, uh, you know, after me telling her the same thing, essentially after three or four times, right? So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I've experienced how awkward it can be when, you know, someone is trying to uh, get things done in, in a particular way, I suppose. 
Yeah. And it's, it's funny because most people, I actually, I love when it's someplace I've already donated because I feel so good just being like, actually, I already donated to your organization. Cause it's like saying like, I agree with your cause yeah. and I'm saying no. And I, we can all like leave feeling, you know, fine about that. Um, and most of the time people will be okay with that, but some people won't, or they'll be trained to like ask again and again. And, um, yeah, the advice that I've heard from other people that I think is most useful is you just you have an excuse or an answer that you feel comfortable with and you keep giving the same one because what they're hoping for is you'll run out of excuses. Like you say one kind of no and the next one you come up with another reason to say no. And at some point you have no other reasons. So you feel like you have to say yes. Yeah. But if you you have you have your reason and you just state it again. No, I'm sorry. Actually, it's because I already don't eat. Yeah, as I said, I already donate. You know, there's a point where it's like now you're not going to run out of excuses. Like you feel sure about that. Like at some point they they'll stop and like it's it's case closed sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great point. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor. So um, I want to shift focus um, to this point that you make about power uh, and influence, uh, and especially because in an organizational context, it's important we have um, you know uh, leaders who. Who I don't know if they, all of them work with this blind spot that you mentioned in the book, which is leaders might have blind spots where they, um, you know, they're not really aware of the kind of influence they hold over others. And you, you also quote Adam Galinsky's experiment, which I which I found to be very fascinating. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Right? What what kind of blind spots might leaders have with respect to the kind of influence they hold over others? Yeah. So there's some research by Adam Galinsky and others um, showing essentially that people in positions of power are less likely to take the perspective of other people and also less good at taking the perspective of, of other people. So they won't sort of spontaneously do it. His famous study um, has people, he primes people with power. So you remember a time you had power and then you draw an E on your forehead with a marker. Mm. And he finds that people who are primed to power are more likely to draw an E that other people can't read. And the argument is that they're not thinking about like the other person. They're not taking the perspective, right? So they're drawing a backwards E. Yeah. Um, it was a tiny study. It's not clear like how, uh, I wouldn't put too much weight in that particular study, mm -hmm. but there are a bunch of other studies that show similar things. So I do think the general finding, like that's a nice illustration of the general finding. And I think it is, it's, it's been found in a number of contexts. So the idea is that people are less likely to take other people's perspective when they have power. Um, the other thing is that power is associated with the ability to say no to more stuff, right? You're just not as situationally constrained. You have to say no more. You're not as worried about what that means um, because it doesn't matter as much when you're in power what other people think of you because you already have the power, right? So you could just say no. And that causes two problems or um, those two things basically cause several problems. So if you're not taking other people's perspectives and you feel like you can easily say no to things, when you ask someone else for something, right, you are less likely to appreciate how hard it is for them to say no to you when you're in a position of power, right? You're not taking their perspective yeah. and you're kind of overgeneralizing. Well, like if you don't want to just say no, right? That's what I would do essentially. So why don't you do that too? So when, I, when you ask people for things and you're in a position of power, um, there's this risk that you can wind up asking them for things they feel uncomfortable with. And, you know, the examples I give are like potentially like unethical things, also, mm -hmm. you know, romantic requests. So like bosses and subordinates who wind yeah. up dating and, and the boss is the sort of initiator. 
And you can put someone in an uncomfortable position without fully understanding the power that you have, even more so than sort of um, someone without power. And so it it kind of sets up this dynamic where there is the risk with power of underestimating your influence even more so that you accidentally misuse it. And it's not inevitable. So there are people who, with power, who really are able to sort of counteract that. Um, but it is something to be aware of when you're in a position of power that, you know, the dynamic has changed between you and other people. Hmm. It's harder for them to say no to you, but you may not have fully adjusted and, and recognize how hard, just how hard it is for them to say no to you. Sure. Um, and you also mentioned that leaders who are uh, more pro-social in their approach to leadership and also acknowledge the responsibility that comes with power and not just the opportunities um, that go along with it are far more effective in their leadership vis-a-vis -vis, uh, you know, those who uh, who probably have that blind spot and don't work work on it. Right? Could you talk a little bit about how this works? Why is it that being pro-social or focusing a little more on the responsibility aspect of it vis-a-vis -vis just the you know milking the opportunities so to speak right what what difference does that make in the way that uh, we might approach some of these situations yeah exactly so um power just by its nature comes with you know you're in control of people's outcomes and you could focus on that you could focus on you know the fact that i'm in control i can make the decisions now i can do what i think is best and many people focus on that, right? That's the association with power. Once you have power, you don't have the constraints. You can steer the ship in the direction that you want. Um, and that is an important part of power. But tied up with that is that all those decisions you're making affect other people even more than when you didn't have power, right? So those decisions you make, you know, um, if your decisions don't pan out, other people are going to suffer. If they do, you're going to help other people. And so, People in positions of power who recognize that second part, that responsibility that comes with it as well, and they're thinking not just about, you know, the opportunities that power affords and sort of the success they're going to bring, right, but are also thinking of how they're going to help other people with this power, how they're going to ensure that they don't, you know, make mistakes because they have other people depending on them. Um, they tend to be seen as, you know, better bosses and leaders. People tend to respect them and feel heard um, as opposed to, you know, people in positions of power who seem like they don't really care yeah. about other people. And so that's, as I, I said earlier, sort of the risk with power is that you are not attuned to the influence you have. Mm. The people who are able to sort of recognize that risk and address it are the people who think of power in pro-social terms, who think of the responsibility that comes with it. And when you do that, then you actually perspective take more. Then you think about like, well, what would this what would people think of this decision? How might it affect them in ways that, um, you know, for, for better or worse, essentially? Sure. Um, which brings me to probably one of the last questions that I'll ask you is, um, so therefore, how do we be better become aware of this, right? So how do we better see, feel, experience our influence over others? Um, and uh, again, you've given several examples, but the rejection therapy uh, example really kind of, you know, stuck with me. Um, could you talk about that a little bit about how we can do this better for all of us? Yeah, so... Um, as you said in the book, you know, I have a few recommendations. So like some are kind of cognitive games you can play where, you know, you reframe a situation from a third party perspective to better see your role in a situation. Um, some are simple, like instead of 
guessing constantly what someone's thinking, actually asking them. Um, people are more forthcoming than we think, and we tend to forget that that's actually a totally legitimate and useful uh, possibility. Um, and then one of the other ones that that you mentioned, which is particularly fun, is based on rejection therapy. And so rejection therapy is essentially this just silly kind of internet game that was um, started a number of years ago by someone who was getting over rejection and just felt very paralyzed by his fear of being rejected by other people and decided he was going to combat it by using the psychological principles of exposure therapy. So exposure therapy is like, I'm scared of spiders, so I'm just going to constantly expose myself to spiders. I'm scared of heights, so I'm going to go on all these high things until I'm not scared anymore. So his thinking was like, I can do this with rejection, and I'm just going to get rejected as much as possible, and I won't be worried about rejection anymore. And so he came up with this game where you basically get like, at the time, it was like you get a card or something. Now it's online. And it's like, ask someone for this crazy thing, which you know you're going to get rejected from. And first of all, the interesting thing about people who have sort of logged their experience with this is that even though these things should get you rejected, they get you rejected less than you expect, right? Which is basically like Frank and my my finding. So, um, you know, we think if we ask someone to, like one of them is like going to um, a donut shop and asking them to make like the Olympic rings donuts, right? You think like they're going to laugh in your face and say no. But in fact, um, uh, when people have sort of tested this out, like there's videos of people like working really hard to to make these donuts for somebody, right? So they actually didn't wind up getting rejected. Um, But even when you sort of do get rejected, people are much kinder about it and it's less painful in the end than we tend to think. So that's that's the general idea. Um, But you know, even separate from this kind of more wacky version of rejection therapy, I'd say testing out your influence more and more by if, you know, normally you would hold back and not ask for something and maybe even bend over backwards to avoid asking someone for help, right? Stop yourself from doing that. Go ahead and ask. And you'll usually find that, in fact, they were happy to do something or, you know, they they did it and there were no real negative repercussions that made your life a lot easier. Um, another one is just making an active effort to give more compliments, express more gratitude. So, you know, if you see someone doing something you appreciate, if someone gave a great presentation and you walked out thinking that, you know, make sure you tell them, you know, send them an email after, go up to them after the presentation. Um, if, you know, even just hearing this or, you know, something comes up where you're like, oh yeah, there was this person in my life who had a really big impact on me and that, that they were an amazing mentor. Send them an email. It means so much to get those emails so much more than we think. And yeah. by starting to do that, you realize that it feels good for you and them. And it, it kind of starts to make you realize that like your words really do matter and you really do matter to other people. Sure. An example that comes to mind is, so when I, when I wrote my first book, um, you know, I I didn't um, I didn't know how to kind of express gratitude to my uh, editor, um, and after many years, I I wrote a gratitude letter to her, um, and she was of course taken aback pleasantly. But then I think it it only kind of forged the relationship much stronger, right? So I think we we became much closer as a result of that uh, experience that both of us had. I think it was pleasant for me, of course, and I'm sure she also uh, liked it. Uh, she we did talk about it later after that. So yes, I would I would completely agree. These can be life changing, uh, not just for you, but also for the other person, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. Uh, I want to do one last thing if um, if you're a game professor, which is this thing called as the word ball that I do, where um, you know it's it's essentially a word association game that comes from improv, where I say a word or a phrase and you say the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I'm right? so scared of this. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if if you're a game, then I'm gonna shoot some words and phrases at you, and you say the first thing that comes to mind, and maybe we'll pick up one or two depending on how the responses go. Is that is that okay? Sure. And it's just literally the first thing. It doesn't have to be relevant to anything that we've talked about. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. Okay. 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 So um, here we go. First word coming your way. Power. Influence. Perspective. Taking. A spotlight effect. Uh, invisibility cloak illusion. Mm. Insinuation anxiety. Um, embarrassment. Uh, fear of rejection. Uh, not as bad as you think. Pro-social. Um, altruism. Influence. Um, impact. Okay, wonderful. I'm I'm through with my words. Thanks for thanks for playing along. I hope you had. Uh, I hope you had fun. I did want to touch upon. I had one question, follow up question, which is that you you mentioned the invisibility uh, cloak effect when I said spotlight effect. Could you just talk about that a little bit and how they go together? Yeah. So um, the spotlight effect is basically this idea that we think, especially when something embarrassing happens or something you know we fail in some way or we make a mistake, that there's a spotlight on us and everybody's watching us essentially. Um, the invisibility cloak illusion is almost the opposite, and it's sometimes referred to as the reverse spotlight effect. Mm. And that's the idea that, you know, when we're not acutely worried about everyone watching us, we just kind of assume that nobody is paying attention to us, that we're almost like wrapped up in an invisibility cloak. And so, you know, these are the moments you're like on the train on the way to work or something, and maybe you have headphones on or you know, you're walking across the park with sunglasses and you're just kind of oblivious to the world. Like, and if anyone were to come up to you and say something or notice you, you'd be surprised. Like, oh yeah, like I'm visible to other people. So um, it's that effect. And that's actually more common than the spotlight effect because there's more instances where we're just going about our day than when we're like acutely self-conscious. And so it's another way that people notice us more than we realize. And so we have more impact in the world than we realize. Yeah. Yeah. That was also one of my big uh, aha moments when I, when I read, right. The answer is somewhere in the middle. It's not as black or yeah. white as you think it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm through with my questions. Uh, thank you so much for, um, you know, patiently answering them and going through them. Uh, do you have any kind of final closing remarks uh, before I let you go? Um, I don't think so. I'd say just if there's one sort of action item it's to you know go ahead and send somebody a, a note of gratitude or thanks or send them a compliment today because in the end like that's going to make your day and it's going to make someone else's day as well Absolutely. but thank you so much for having me it's been it's been a pleasure chatting my big takeaway from this conversation was the fact that we typically underestimate how much influence we have over others and this effect is amplified when you're in a position of power this is important for leaders to understand because they may be inadvertently influencing all kinds of behaviors in their teams without really being aware of it. Until next time, I hope this episode helped you discover the science of influence in a new light and how we can all take better responsibility of the influence we have over others. 